All right, I'm pretty excited today. We are going to start, you've got a new uh, goldenrod sheet. We're going to start the history of the common service. Um, as we start that, uh, to just kind of give you the big picture of it, um, I began a history of the Lutherans in North America so that we would have the foundation concerning that. And so, for example, uh, we talked about how Lutherans first came to America somewhere around 1640, things of that sort. Uh, we saw that uh, pietism and rationalism were uh, rampant at the time, yet Lutherans started to, uh, on the... Uh, Hudson River and, and other places. Finally, the immigration came over. We went through that history. That history, I'm done with that. I'm going to be using a book uh, by our bishop, uh, James D. Heiser, wrote a book called The Common Service. He presented this in a pre-book form at the uh, last Senate. Uh, and so I'm going to be using that copy, which I have. I do remember, I think I bought five copies of this. I don't know, maybe I bought more. I do have a couple that are, that are here, if somebody would uh, uh, like those. Uh, I will be using his book in order to now go back and cue in to the history of the common service, the divine service, uh, our worship. Uh, and, and how it came about. Um, again, it's not going to be nearly as, uh, as long, but uh, he's got five sections in the front of his book. I don't think we can get them done in five Sundays, but we'll see what we, what, what we have. Um, I think it'll be a little more than that. But by taking a look at that, that will prepare us for... The Augustana Service Book and Hymnal, the supplement, and some of the things that we will be doing. So that's kind of my grand plan as we uh, go on. One of the reasons why I am uh, very excited is that I think that, having gone through the history, as I told uh, those who came to Vespers last night, I told them, you know what? Tomorrow morning in Bible class, I'm pretty sure the lights are going to start going off. That is, I prepared that as we go through the history of the worship, it's not going to be so much as history as you're going to find that as you look at this, you're going to be going, hey, I know what was going on there theologically. In fact, you've already started, I've noticed the last couple Sundays uh, as we've gotten to things, have said, Wait a minute, that's a lot like what was going on when I was at here, or what's going on now, or wait a minute, that's very similar, and I think that's what's going to happen. So, um, I'm pretty excited to, you know, you got to build in the facts first, got to teach you what those facts mean, and then the application all of a sudden all comes together. So, I think that's what's going to happen today. Uh, we'll be looking at that book, and I'll be explaining, uh, Bishop Heiser presented that to his Bible class in uh, five uh, sessions, and he's got five DVDs that go with it. Um, much of it is him uh, reading the, the book itself. 
Um, I'm going to play the first five minutes of it. All right? I, I, I don't know if that's the best way to present it to you. It's very good. I like it. Um, I, nevertheless, I don't know if the quality is as great. It gets better by the third DVD. But um, if you can't hear real well, that's okay. But I am going to play for you the first uh, five minutes of it to just give you a feel for it. This is where he introduces it. And when he gets to the point where he's going to read, I'm going to read his paper as well as explain for you what's going on and, and the connections with it. There are, when we get to it, on the front page of this is an outline of the first lecture and then on the back a order of service that he will refer to uh, within it. So let's take the first five minutes. I mentioned that this project had been underway for, well, a little while. Um, I started this um, about, let's see here, December of 92, January of 93. It connects back to uh, actually the, the very first one of the uh, First Nation Press projects I ever did. Uh, before, before the press was the press, and it was just a project for Pastor Hudson and myself. Uh, the, uh, the first volume that we printed was uh, Liturgy for Christian Congregations of Lutheran Faith by Bill and uh, the English translation of which was published in 1902, and we reprinted in 93. Um, the first edition had a whopping 25 copies, because the two of us had gotten so tired of, actually the first printing was 15 copies, the second printing was 25 copies, um, and then it took off from there. Because um, we got tired of listening to faculty say, well, the best book on thus and such topic is this work, um, but it's been out of print for 75 years and we'll get the 20 copy. And so the First Nation Press was born out of an effort to say, okay, fine, we will put these things back in print. This is absurd because this is before um, Google Books and all those kinds of things started to bring back some of the reprints. So um, I found as I do my research, there's an awful lot of stuff that still isn't uh, recorded that way. So I started with the work of liturgics, and I've continued with my study of liturgy over the years. What I found in seminary was that they told you very little with regard to where our service actually came from and why. Indeed, uh, when they give you your Lutheran worship class in your first year in seminary, it's the shut up and eat it class. It's the, this is what you're going to be doing, we won't explain the theology, it's just, no, here, here's the mechanics of how to make this happen. Um, and by the way, whatever, whatever the new thing is that the Synod brings out, that's the newest, bestest thing, it's like totally better than anything we've ever done before, so again, shut up and eat it. Um, which had me suspicious from the get-go. A friend of mine um, from well, one class, I think it was ahead of me in seminary, um, told me about all of his grand themes for where um, the, the liturgy should go. Um, he was one who, when the LSB committee was done, was working on trying to get various Eastern Orthodox rites included into the uh, LSB. He didn't succeed in that, but we did get some other things in there. 
And I made the point to him while he was waxing eloquent about this, circa 95, about all these things that we need to do in the church. Um, I looked him in the eye and said, if you're lucky, you will spend your entire ministry trying to get a congregation to do TLH right. And he was confronted by this. I'm like, it's true. When we're talking about the performing the liturgy according to how it is specified and the historic right which has been handed down to us, we're talking about something that was very carefully crafted to bring in all of the best aspects of the classic Lutheran rites. The Lutheran church does not need to go to heretics to borrow liturgy. Uh, we have a received tradition, and it's best that we learn that tradition. Now, looking at this in the context then of the American service, uh, title for the first portion of this is The Rise of the Common Service, the English Liturgy, and the Church of the Oxford Confession. Our nation gets founded at a time when uh, the situation was very dire in Europe in terms of the flow of Christianity, because you were contending with uh, the deleterious effects of both pietism, which was concerned with emotions and sensationalism, um, and was not reverent toward the received rights, on the one hand. And then rationalism, on the other hand, which was seeking to drive the divine out of everything. So America is born in that context of these things transpiring in Europe. And as we move through um, the study of liturgy, we'll find that there were those kinds of influences which, in time, had to be contended against in uh, the American Lutheran Church. So just to kind of then start this from the beginning. Uh, even before the rise of the American Republic, it was the hope of the foremost Lutheran pastors. Okay, that's the first five minutes. He's beginning the uh, reading of his book. Any questions before we get started? He mentioned a couple of themes. We've talked about pietism and rationalism before. We've talked about uh, the, the changes. Some of the things, quite interesting, even as he mentioned, yep, um, those who would say, uh, wow, this book is really good, but it hasn't been in print for 75 years, they started producing some of those. Also, as he mentioned, yes, there is a part of seminary where you simply have to learn which way to face, what to do, and what to say. But you also need to be taught, why do we do the stuff that we do? And that should also, for you, kind of go, wait a minute, I don't know if I was taught why we do what we do. Well, may have, maybe because the pastor was never taught why we do what we do. Um, you've probably heard me you know, tell the story that my uh, uh, grandfather uh, followed uh, the liturgy. My mother and father followed the liturgy, and when I grew up, well, until you know, the 80s, something like that, we followed the liturgy. Um, you know, I asked my mom, you know, what about these things? What, you know, what, why do we do things the way we do? Well, I don't really know. You ought to ask Grandpa. And so we asked Grandpa, why do we do, you know, the things that we do. Well, I'm pretty sure that somewhere, sometime, someone knew. Um, 
But my grandfather followed it because he was a faithful son and of the church. And he did and respected his parents, even if he didn't know every reason why, he did it. But when the people that were the age of my parents, the baby boomer kind of generation, they questioned everything and said, well, tell us about this. You don't know? Fine, we don't want to do it anyway. And, and they got rid of it. Um, it was those that came about my time and afterwards that started to go back to the liturgy, but we couldn't talk to our parents and our grandparents. Wanted, we had to go to books to figure it out. So this, uh, this is the history. This is where we uh, are. In this particular book, let me read the first uh, part of it. I will put it up on the uh, board so that you can uh, see it or if you have the book or, or that. Even before the rise of the American Republic, it was the hope of the foremost Lutheran pastors in North America to see the Lutheran pastors in North America, to, I'm sorry, in North, to see the Lutheran churches united in a common liturgy. Indeed, with the establishment in 1748 of the first organized Senate of Lutherans in North America, the Evangelical Lutheran Ministerium in North America, the link between a common confession and a common liturgy was seen as inherent to a Lutheran understanding of the connection between doctrine and practice. As the founding father of the Lutheran Ministerium, and we knew it as later it got the name the Pennsylvania Ministerium. You might remember, that was the, really the first. Henry Melchor Muhlenberg, 1711-1787, declared near the end of his life, it would be a most desirable and advantageous thing if all the evangelical Lutheran congregations in the North American states were united with one another, if they all used the same order of service, the same hymn book, and in good and evil days would show an active sympathy and fraternally correspond with one another. A detailed history of the organization of the First Senate in North America is beyond the scope of our current research. However, it is worth noticing that the same Senate which met for the first time in 1748 took the promulgation of a common divine service as one of its primary purposes for meeting. The first North American church order was established in August 1748 when six pastors gathered together for the founding meeting of the Lutheran Ministerium. As the pastors reported to the Mission Society in Halle, Germany, quote, we found it necessary to unity in the services of public worship to prepare a brief agenda, or a Kirchenordnung. We had regard to the circumstances of our congregations, the members of which had come from many parts of Germany. We took as the basis the printed Kirchenordnung the printed Kirchen agenda of the German Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in the Savoy at London, because we had no other one at hand. The circumstances of the church at that time were such that it was sufficient that every pastor of the new ministerium made a handwritten copy of the entire agenda. Miraculously, three copies still exist, one of which was made in 1763 and another in 1769. The date of the third is unknown at this time. 
in his seminal evaluation of the 1748 liturgy, Beal Melanchthon Schmucker observes, quote, But the order of service, which had gradually grown into form, was carefully revised and brought into final shape in the summer of 1748 by the United Councils of Muhlenberg, by the United Councils of Muhlenberg, who was its chief author, under whose care it had been maturing since 1742. Brunholz, who since 1745 had counseled with him, and Hanshu, who arrived only in April of 1748. The anxiety of these noble men, who were the founders and organizers of the Lutheran Church in Pennsylvania, and, in an important sense in this country, to reduce to order the chaos which they found by establishing a fixed and enduring order of service is shown by the solemn obligation required of each one ordained by them. In point of fact, the oath made by candidates for ordination were quite specific on this matter. Quote, to introduce no other ceremonies in the services of public worship and the administration of the sacrament except those which have introduced, been introduced by the collegiate pastors of the United Congregations and to use no other formulary than that prescribed for me by them. This oath was understood to be bound up with their preceding confessional subscription, which was as follows, to teach in my congregation nothing, whether publicly or privately, but what harmonizes with the word of God and the confessions of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and to this end, to study them diligently. Doctrine and practice are bound up together. All right, so to kind of back up and to give you just a little bit, um, again, we've already looked at the American Republic at the time. We saw that pietism, and guess what? Uh, Henry Melker Muhlenberg, who is considered the father of Lutheranism in North America, he was sent by August Frankie, a pietist, and the Mission Society at Halle. So, you know, did he have some infection of piety? Well, of course he did. Um, in fact, uh, he came over... When he came over, um, he was there was about 24 guys that were sent over. You might remember. I'm kind of pulling you back <coughs> into history. When he got here, what did he encounter? He encountered, as he said, kind of chaos in worship. This was at the time of the Great Awakening. This was the time of revivalism. This, you know, um, in addition to it just being a new country. We saw their conditions, you know, you didn't have a copy machine, you didn't print off books just that quickly, and so, um, when they were trying to deal with these things, you might remember when he got here, he had a man named Zinzendorf, who was a Moravian, not a Lutheran, who was, uh, um, mainly Moravian kind of stuff, was kind of Calvinist, Reform, Presbyterian kind of, he's going up and down the coast, the Lutherans love him. Um, and, and Muhlenberg is trying to stop and to bring people back to Lutheranism. Um, granted, he wasn't perfect. It talked about how he served united congregations, which means that there were the evangelical reform. There was both that went together. Um, the Lutherans that were up in the uh, Hudson River 
the Dutch and whatever, they kind of regarded Muhlenberg as being a bit pietistic. But that being said, you can see, he said, listen, we've got to get together. So, in 1748, he begins the first grouping. Let's let everybody do their own thing. Let's all get together. When they formed this first senate, guess what? It was a ministerium. What does that mean? Pastors joined it. Not really congregations. Um, when they came together, there were both ministers and laymen there, but similar to, do you know of any other group that... <coughs> Has pastors join it? Hmm, interesting. Modeled somewhat after that kind of thing. Um, I'm just curious, when did he come over and how long did it take him to uh, call this? If I remember, 1742, he's doing this by 1748. Um, it may have been even, uh, I'm just going to have to... No, it's not important. I just kind of wanted to come. Um, you know, so, you know, faced with chaos. And how 1742 is when he was uh, sent to come over. Thank you. All right. You can see already. And what did they do at their first meeting? Let's see if we can all worship on the same page. So what did they do? Uh, they sought to put together a kirkenodnung, as a church order, something that would govern what we all do, we would all do the same thing. And with that, an agenda is the book that the pastor has that he follows. Normally, the congregation would have a hymn book. It would have the hymns in it. Okay? So, um, yeah, it might be great if everybody had a copy, but truthfully, if the pastor had a copy, he could lead the people through it. And when it is time, they would make use of, uh, uh, of other things. So, in 1748, very first thing they did was, let's see if we can all be together. And that's what they did. And as they continued in the Pennsylvania Ministerium, it's later called, they said, we promise not to do other things. We will follow what's in there. And as they ordained men and brought them in, um, they talked about how the order that they got together, they said they got it from London. Uh, we'll talk about the research a little bit later in which it didn't actually come from London, but it came from some of the best liturgies that were found in northern Germany uh, and came out of the Reformation. Quite amazing that these handwritten copies that they have are still around. All right. Um, I read that... A uh, quote from Muhlenberg from the 1783 uh, letter. Uh, page 8, written down. Um, what was the reason? Uh, so that they would introduce no other uh, ceremonies, but they might be united in those things. Uh I'll go on. Congregations were also bound to the common divine service, even as they were bound by confessional subscription, a fact acknowledged when a congregation was admitted to the fellowship of the ministerium. Quote, We agree to do, order, decide, or alter nothing in important affairs of the church without the previously ordained counsel and consent 
of the Reverend Collegiate Pastors. The confessional subscription of the pastors bound the congregation to the faithful observance of that confession. So where the pastors did this and they were served by a pastor in that way, so they too said, yes, we promise to follow what uh, 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 they have been taught. In his evaluation of the 1748 church order, Beale Schmucker, now, um, we've already mentioned Beale Schmucker, um, Beale Schmucker lived later on, um, and so he is writing about this 50 years later, uh, you know, or something like that, and, and he's looking back at it, and here's what he says about it. He observes, the order of service of 1748 is beyond comparison the noblest and purest Lutheran service which the church in America prepared or possessed until the publication of the church book of 1868. Schmucker observed that a major reason for the purity of the 1748 order was it was not based, despite the claims to the Hollow Mission Society to the contrary on the London Agenda, but on some of the finest Lutheran liturgies which have survived the Reformation, post-Reformation period. In Schmucker's assessment, what then are its true sources? Well, the Lunda Agenda was, only, was the only printed one at hand. We are therefore forced to the conclusion that the agenda in use in Europe, to which Muhlenberg and Brunholz were accustomed, were reproduced from memory. So if they didn't get it from Lunda, where'd they get it? An examination of those agendas fully supports this conclusion. Schmucker has traced the precise church orders to which these pastors had been exposed at length prior to their service in North America. So what does he do? He does a, a, a research and he says, all right, if it doesn't agree with the London completely, what do we find? He goes back to find what they were exposed to over in Germany, for they all followed these. Muhlenberg was at Einbeck from 1711 to 1735, except one year at Zellerfeld. He was accustomed to the use of the Lundberg agenda, which became obligatory there in 1644. At Zellerfeld and at Gottingen, 1735 to 1738, the Kallenberg was used. At Halle, 1738 to 1739, the Brandenburg-Magdeburg, and at Gross-Hernsdorf, 1739 to 1742, the Saxon agenda was used. He was 31 years old when he came to America. The impressions of youth so deeply impressed and so lasting gathered around the Lunenburg service, the later years of deeper religious conviction and of official ministrations made him familiar with the other. The addition of the Lundberg in force at that time was the third, issued in 1643, and in force even unto our times, which was about 1882 when uh, Beale Schmucker was writing. The Kallenberg in force was issued by Julius in 1569, unaltered, though often reprinted. The Brandenburg was that for the ecclesiastical domain of Magdeburg, to which Halle belonged, revised, reissued, 1739. The Saxon was that of Augustus, 1580, revised in 1712, contained in the Saxon Volstandigus Kirchenbuch of Leipzig, 1731. It is worth noting that their one innovation which took place in the 1748 rite, the one that these six guys wrote down, was the placement of the Confession of Sins after the opening hymn. 
it was normally included after the sermon and before Lord's Supper. But in here, it was concluded after the opening hymn. Schmucker observed it was not found in this place in any of the four mentioned German liturgies, Lunenburg, Kallenberg, Brandenburg, Magdeburg, or the Saxon, or in the London Agenda, but that such a confession by the congregation was present in Dober's Volsprechs Evangelium Messe of 1525, the Brandenburg Nuremberg Kirchenordnung, 1533, Melanchthon's Revision of the Mecklenburg Kirchenordnung, 1552, and then the Wittenberg, 1559, Frankfurt, 1565, Lutz, 1571, Oldenburg Church Order, 1573. And in connection with that confession that they put at the beginning, the confessional prayer appears to be that which was in the Kallenberg Rite, which was used in the original rite after the sermon. All right, so turn your yellow sheet over. <coughs> this was the 1748 order of service that Muhlenberg and the others wrote down and that they used from 1742 towards the future. Remind me, the, the Pennsylvania group. Ministerium. Did that just include the Germans, or is that also the Swedish and Norwegian church? Very good. So, I think I showed you before, Muhlenberg comes in 1742, Zinzendorf, they're down here and they're working. There was a Dutch group off the Hudson River, there was a Swedish group in Pennsylvania and some German but the Saxon immigration and most of the Germans came much later. Um, it wasn't at the same time. So, were these Germans? Yes. But they were ones that were down, you know, in this area here. The big immigration groups like um, uh, Grabau in Pennsylvania, uh, Stephan in uh, Perry County, those came later. So we do have some Dutch and Swedish, yeah, some German, kind of, but mainly down here. So yeah. So what do we find of the 1748 service that Muhlenberg, bless his soul, wanted them to be united around? Tell me if this looks um, familiar. starts with a hymn of invocation to the Holy Spirit. There was a confession of sins that includes an exhortation of the people confessing absolution and a curia. Following that was a gloria in excelsis, a colic for the day. Um, those colics were found in the Marburg book. There was, and with that call of the day, there was the salutation response, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. There was an epistle, the hymn of the day, gospel, followed by the Nicene Creed. It could be sung to Luther's masterful, uh, we all believe in one true God, you know, it could be used. A hymn, a sermon, 
there was a prayer or exordium, that is a, a beginning part, kind of an introduction to the sermon, uh, on the gospel, followed by a general prayer or litany with the Lord's Prayer, if there was any proclamation and announcements. The Bodum, the peace of God, which passes us all understanding, be with you. A hymn with a collection of alms. There was a uh, salutation and response, Lord be with you and with your spirit. A closing collect. The benediction with the Amen. And then a conclusion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, maybe a closing verse. That is what was used if there was not Lord's Supper. And then, the order for administration of supper, well, I'll take a look at that, but what do you note about some of these up here? Anything in particular? Well, there's no Old Testament reading, but that wasn't... All right, so first of all, there's no Old Testament reading. Actually, the Old Testament reading was not included as a reading until Lutheran worship. TLH did not have it in 1941. Um, there was no Old Testament reading. In fact... Prior to that, there really wasn't three readings. So that, that's kind of interesting. I must say we're so used to it that that, that would kind of sound surprising. What else? Tony? Seems to be more hymns. There were quite a few hymns, weren't there? Um, and if you think about it, if the pastor is the only one who has the agenda book, and you've got the hymn book, well... You know, you're not going to be able, unless you remember and know the parts, um, you're not going to be able to stay in from, so, yeah, that's the way the congregation, but, but, yeah, there's a little more hymns and some things replaced. What else? Where's the Lord's Supper in this? Um, we're going to talk about if Lord's Supper happens, it's down here. This is the service without Lord's Supper. This is what we would call page five. Well, the announcements came in the middle. The announcements came in the middle. I don't think these announcements, though, were we've got pecans for sale. Okay? These are the announcements. If someone was going to get married, you would announce this over two or three Sundays, and then if anyone had any objection before the marriage would happen. This is the band's. You know, if you were going to restrict it, this is those kind of official announcements concerning churchly official acts. Uh, if someone needed to be have an emergency baptism or something like that. This is his cornhole announcement? Yes. And, and cornhole would not fit. Exactly. Exactly. What else? What about the salutation and response? Isn't that farther up? So, the salutation response always comes before the colic, and that's and it did here, that is. There also is a salutation and response, again, with a closing colic. Normally, you um, the salutation response, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, is always an authorization. It's the pastor saying... Um, I'm here giving out God's gifts, and the people say, yeah, go ahead, we know, you're the pastor. Um, in other words, the Holy Spirit has been given to you to do that, the Lord's Spirit's with you, do it. Um, and so it's done before colics, it's also done before Lord's Supper, and we'll see that there. So, you do have it here, you do have it here, so that's, it's not, I, I, we, we have that at the end of our service as well, right before the last uh, uh, benediction and colic. Mary? 
as the general prayer L is that what we do is a prayer for the church. Okay, so this normally following the sermon, there is a we, we've got a little colic, a colic that is the theme of the day, but there was a general prayer, and by a general prayer, it was printed out. It was a one to two page prayer. It uh, was the same each Sunday. It had a place where if there were special requests or special prayers that needed to be done, um, that's what the general prayer was. There, You could use a litany like we use for a litany. You know, we pray for various things, the people, Lord, have mercy, and you respond. Um, and then it's followed by the Lord's Prayer. So that that is in the same place and, and pretty similar, although um, I have tailored that general prayer. It it, it has the same themes, it has the same prayers for the people, prayers for the government, prayers for us, but um, it's not the exact general prayer. What was the closing verse? The closing verse, yeah, this is a scripture verse that they would include. That's a little different, and I, I have no idea um, where that came from or what that was. I don't know. Sometimes in these books they would have Oh, five to fourteen different options, and you could pick one. Or, or I don't know if this was. I, sorry, I, I just don't know. It's a good point, but it's not in ours. By and large, you know, I mean, it might be a little bit different here and there, but by and large, it's, it's got the, the main parts that we have. It's very similar. Um, it doesn't have psalms or graduals in there, but that was kind of added later. Um, but. I would look at that and go, yeah, that's a pretty good service. Yeah, you would, you would come to this and you would be quite familiar. Again, the hymn of the day normally comes after the gospel and the creed, but then they'd have another hymn. You know what I mean? Yeah, some things are just a little bit, but you would, you would not walk away going, I don't know what that was. You would come away going, yeah, you know, um, it, it didn't follow exactly, or it may not have been the, the tune that I was used to, but primarily... Again, something like introits and graduals, kind of chanting of the psalms and all, you're going, you know, let's print off a new page for you. Yeah, that didn't quite happen. Now, um, up in uh, the Hudson River, they tried that. It was tough in America to make that that happen. Even in Germany, where they did do those things, you often had... Um, appointed choir or someone that did that, the people were not all able to read. So uh, uh, if you didn't have uh, a couple of boys that would chant that for you, you didn't have it happen, or the pastor read it. But by and large, it looks pretty pretty similar. Um, and, and, and looks, you know, I'm going to say, really good. Order for the administration of the Lord's Supper. Let's see how that goes. If you had Lord's Supper as follows, this is what would happen. There would be the preface, which includes uh, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Uh, The Sanctus, the Holy, 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 that goes with it. There was an exhortation, Luther's exhortation and a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer. That was followed by the consecration, which include the Lord's Prayer and the words of institution. There was an invitation to communion. 
at the distribution then, uh, the words, take and eat, this is the true body of our Lord Jesus Christ, given unto death for you, uh, drink, true blood of the New Testament shed for you, uh, may this strengthen you in true faith and everlasting life, amen. There was a conclusion which included, uh, let us bless the Lord, thanks be to God, the Benedictus, collect of thanksgiving, thanking God for the gift the salutary gift which you have provided. There was a benediction with an Amen, and in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen, and a closing verse. What do you think? Mary? I've always wondered, maybe you've addressed this before, what's the difference between the benedictimus and the benediction? So the benediction is that threefold uh, words that were Aaron at the temple the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord, that's what that is. The benedictimus, and that ending is, we bless the Lord, let us, is, let us bless the Lord and the people say thanks be to God. That's the benedictimus. Usually then it's followed by that benediction which is pronounced by the pastor. Thank you. Again, this is uh, Bishop Heiser giving us a outline of, of what's all there so that we know that. What else do you see? Karn? That exhortation is interesting. Okay. It's a little catechetical uh, teaching before what saying is, what, what is this? Um, you know, of all the parts, we kind of go, oh yeah, that's there, and you know, maybe it's been moved around or whatever. This is one where you kind of go, wait a minute, that's not in our in our Sunday morning. It was included in every one of their divine services. However, you're not unfamiliar with it, because I have used it. Do you know when? Monday, Thursday. I use it Monday, Thursday. Uh, I use it usually on Ash Wednesday. There's a couple of times in which the pastor stands up, and there's about a page in which the pastor says... You know, our Lord has instituted this supper, and we're getting it out. It behooves us that we might examine our sins and see that there is nothing good in us, and that we ought to come believing that it's the body and blood of Christ. There is an explanation and an exhortation to, if you're going to come to Lord's Supper, make sure that you know that you're a sinner and you believe it's the body and blood of Christ, and that was included. So that is different. You know, I think the I think the LW is beginning to make an attempt to that with the conclusion to the prayer and also the the uh, the words that go just before the words of institution. There, that's that's a feeble attempt at going back to that. I will talk about this later. Once we get done with this, we're going to go back and hit the parts of the service and see what is included. And I, I would completely agree that this idea of just saying, well, just the bare words of institution. Yes, they are our Lord's words, and, and, and they explain everything. But we don't often pull everything out that we need to. The exhortation was to say, let me pull that out for you and tell you. LW actually does it in some prayers. They intended for another use, and I'll, right. we'll talk about that. But it serves that purpose. It, it actually does, and, and that's why I've kept it for our congregation uh, the hill. Okay, so that's pretty similar. That's new. Uh, the connection of the consecration of the Lord's Prayer with the words of institution 
there was even a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer here, and there was the Lord's Prayer used up here. So the Lord's Prayer was actually used two times completely, and another time kind of following its order. Um, well, my question is, can you ever say the Lord's Prayer too much? <laughs> True. Uh, there was an invitation. I'm not exactly sure what that was. Um, no one has mentioned this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not new to us. It's an invocation at the end of the service. But we call it the invocation. And in both of these, it's not at the beginning. It's at the very end, which is quite unusual. Uh, We've described this in two ways. One, it is an announcement of and to our God of who are, lest you wonder when we say we're going to worship God, I wonder which God it is. No, you don't have to wonder. At the very beginning, we tell you just exactly which God it is. It's the triune God. The second thing is, by beginning this way, we begin remembering our baptism because we were baptized with these words. So everybody who comes is a believer is baptized. But now this is at the end. Um, I remember reading in one of the various books that I've worked on that it is it is at the end of it also to remind you that through the week, your Christian life is to be led in the name of the triune God. And so to send us out reminding ourselves that that would not be a bad thing. Um, it's, tra- it's not traditionally found there, but, you know, I, I, I can see it. Also, A, at the beginning of the service, it says, Hymn of Invocation to the Holy Spirit. So, right off the bat, there, it's not the triune God they're referring to there, but it does say the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of the whole thing, one would think. Correct. And so, you see already the acknowledgement that what? In this divine service, what is where the Holy Spirit is working? And we're asking the Holy Spirit to create and strengthen uh, faith. And so um, that's why it is included at the very at the very beginning. Um, it's not necessarily, it's kind of interesting, it's not really so much a hymn that's based on the readings of the day as it is simply to be one that prepares us for the reading uh, uh, and the receiving of the Lord's Supper. Any other things with that? All right. Go back to your outline, uh, following at the middle of the page here, following the 1748 order of service, the order for see the back of the page, page 13. Let me move forwards. The importance of liturgical uniformity was impressed upon the clergy by the chaos which they found in the colonies. The rubrics for the 1748 service set forth the expectation of complete conformity with the rite. Quote, What is particularly to be noted in regard to these orders is the rubric. So if you take a look at the pastor's book, the agenda book that they wrote down, it has, and normally we talk about, the rubrics are in red. When I say that, what do we mean? Well, when books were printed, you said the parts that were in black, and if there were directions, you put them in red. That way the pastor doesn't get confused. 
he doesn't turn around and tell you things like, at this point we stand up and, oh no, I just read the blackboards, I do the rat. Um, and so, concerning the rubrics, they are positive and definite, and always in the imperative mood. The attitude of the minister, minister is defined. His every movement is directed. The very form of the words is to be used in introducing the several parts is prescribed. Nothing is left to choice. The disjunctive or is employed in only three instances. Now, follow me in this. Here's what you do, and here's when you do it. And it says exactly. The minister shall face the congregation and say. And then it has the point, and it does it. At only three points in that entire order is there an option, an or. Once to give direction to use one or the other of two hymns chosen. <laughs> There are two hymns here you can use one of. It doesn't say any hymn you want, whatever tickles your fancy. One of these two hymns. There's an or. Okay, so you could have one of these. Next. The other was to sing part or whole of the whole hymn. You, we're we're going to allow you, if you want to just sing four stanzas as opposed to the whole. Okay, that's allowed. Here's the last one. You might like this. I don't know. You may not like this. And the third is having reference to the length of the sermon. It shall be limited to three quarters of an hour or at the utmost to an hour. So I got an option. I can go 45 minutes or an hour. That's it, Pastor. Cut you off. You're done. Um, what do you think of that? You think I'm not preaching enough. That's what you're thinking, right? You're thinking, man, you better, you know, you got to lengthen that sermon by about twice. You know, you're only preaching 15 minutes, buddy. What kind of, you know, what are you doing all week? Shirley? I want to go back up there to the choice, uh, the choice of two hymns. Uh-huh. Who chose the two hymns? How was that? They were already in the book. Okay. They were already in the book, and they were listed there, and the pastor could choose one of those two hymns. Like, there are two hymns that deal with uh, to the Holy Spirit. You'll pick one of these. Okay, so, because these, these pastors, I'm assuming, were scattered out. Yes. So this book, so every Sunday for a year, these were all printed in this book. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how, how word got to the pastors, which... No, it was in the agenda book. They wrote down. Okay. They wrote it down, and as they these pastors wrote it down, they said, you know, and I don't know which one it was, but the hymn, let's say the hymn of invocation was, you will either use number 374 or number 375. And that's it. So this hymnal, I'm trying to get this in my head. Well, saying two hymns every Sunday. No, but I mean, it's not the same two hymns for a year. How did you know? Every Sunday, the pastor chose one of those two hymns. But it wasn't by the church calendar where it changed all. No, 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 no. There were hymns of the day, and that would change based upon what Sunday we were in, and we would use this hymn for. for Lent number one, and this hymn for Lent number two, and this hymn for this. This is just one option of two hymns in this plot, and that's all you would do. Now, once again, here's the thing, though. The pastor had the agenda book, and I'm sorry, I was going to bring down 
and I, I didn't bring it down. Um, but their hymn book was was not this size. It was this size. It had no music in it, and it had the hymns in it. Okay? I'll get to that just a little bit later with this, because most of them did use a hymn book, that is, the people themselves, from Germantown, Pennsylvania, which had been printed earlier. And so they would have their hymn... And truthfully, I mean, we're in the, you know, the colonies. You would have hoped that most of us had the same hymn book, but we may not, because we all came from different places. And truthfully, hymn books were not designed to be in the pew. The reason they were that size is they fit in your pocket. And when you got confirmed, you were given a hymn book. And at that point, that hymn book was used morning, evening, it was used you know, everywhere. And you brought your hymn book because you were confirmed, and now you're able to participate in the services of the church. And so the pastor would announce the hymn. Hopefully we all have But if we didn't, you did your best. You looked up that hymn in your hymn book, and hopefully you had that. And hopefully the time you were my age, you had that hymn book memorized, because a lot of that's so small. Especially those two hymns. Exactly. Exactly. But, but that was the reason for that. Mary? And as far as the length of the sermon, Walt tells me that his pastor used to, well, from, your, from the pulpit, you can see who's nodding off. And uh, the, his pastor used to call out the names of those people who were. So, things have changed. I have, I'm going to go get the Pohaskas, if anybody wants to know why I'm leaving early. It's not because of the We're speaker. glad. We're, it'd be great to see them back. She'll have her thing on her foot so that she can walk them off. Um, I went to a circuit, uh, uh, I don't know, most of the, uh, when I grew up, most of the pastors preached about 20 minutes. Um, I would say that most of the pastors of my age behind me preach about 12 to 15 minutes, uh, which is about what I do, and I, I find that, that most people can listen. I think it's just a matter of how long can you listen and, and, and take in. Um, I was given some wisdom from uh, uh, someone who said that uh, uh, you can't go wrong with the short sermon, Pastor. He said, because if it's good, we wish it went longer, and if it wasn't, we're glad you're done. <laughs> um, I did go to a circuit, uh, Divine, Surf Circuit Week, Divine Service one time, and uh, unbeknownst to us, one of the pastors pulled out a sermon of Luther um, and preached Luther's sermon. It was an hour and 15 minutes or, or something. Um, and, and it was amazing, um, but you kind of got to be prepared for that. I mean, when that's not the expectation anymore. But um, that was their... Their expectation, and that's pretty well the um, uh, 
the length that they used. I just wonder. Karen? I, I know I've read something that the typical uh, attention span of a human being is 45 minutes. That's is that right? Yeah, I Interesting. Mean, that's a, a psychobabble something. Um, we've become less human over the last few <laughs> well, years. Yeah, that was, that was 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> electronics, you know. Um, but, but I wondered if. Uh, a short sermon is removing the temptation for the pastor to insert himself into that sermon. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, there are, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's always decisions that need to be made. And, and uh, there are principles. And how you apply those principles are always... Um, you know, there's not a right and wrong. And so, you know, when it comes to the sermon... All right, Pastor, it's your time to apply the word. No, not to put your own stuff, but to apply the word of God. Um, in other areas, for example, like the general prayer and to some of these others, they said, here's the order, here's the thing, read the words, follow it. We, we think that that is, is good. Maybe you've been to services where the pastor has personalized absolutely in every part of the service. You know, he like puts his little two cents in at each point, and instead of, of giving you the body and blood of, you know, take and eat, you know, uh, Cecil, take and do, you know, and put your name in it, you know, and then in another spot he, he, he like puts little stories, you know, and you kind of go, you got a sermon, guy, just that, that's where you can do that. But here is where I want you just to deliver the goods. So there's always those kind of questions, and you never quite, you know, is it always? No, and you can always mess it up. Um, I was telling my uh, uh, Baptist uncle one time, and uh, uh, he was talking about how they brought people down front and sang songs. And I said, well, we, we don't do that, you know. Um, I go, if there is going to be a choir or something, we put them in the back. I go, because we're directing our attention to the Word of God. You know, rather than, you know, oh, take a look at Susie's nice dress and, you know, kind of uh, um, thing. And, and he goes, okay, okay. You know, you kind of go, all right, well, that's the, that's the. He goes, wait a minute, who else is down front? You're down front. <laughs> I go, oh, you're right. Maybe I ought to be in the balcony. <laughs> I go, but wait a minute, we cover me up. Why do we, if anyone's down front, you cover them up. You cover them up with, you know, with vestments. Why? So they just look like a pastor. You have no idea what color tie or, you know, shirt I'm wearing, whatever, because we cover me up. So I go, you know, there's a reason why. We put someone, you know, um, the next pastor comes, you just switch the head. It's pretty easy. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the only thing. So, you know, there are always decisions you have to make, and I think as we go forward, we're going to find that. There are things that are right and wrong, and then there's a big wealth of things that, how are we going to do this? Um, there is some respect for the elders that have gone before you and the church that has gone before you, and maybe they knew what they were doing. And so we, if you do change it, you're very careful. At this time, did they do Sunday school Bible study? thinking it had not really come no. into the church and so really this Sunday school time 
is a teaching time where maybe back then the sermon was it. That was the only time you had with the pastor all week, and so that was his time to really teach you. That is true. So it's just one thing that you replace the other. Correct, correct. That, that is very true. And so maybe 45 minutes included a lot what we would call Bible class and sermon and as well. All right, well, that, uh, we're out of time, but that gets us to about to this point. We're going to push forward with it. Um, Stephen? Was the order of service originally, was it pulled or sifted from the Bible and created that way? Or was it just the elders decided this is what we want to include in today's service? Very good. Um, all of this comes from the scriptures. In fact, I've got a little handout sheet in the back of in the narthex. Uh, it's about a half page. It has a listing of all the Bible verses from which this comes. When someone comes to you and says, well, you know, I don't like all this liturgy stuff. I just want the Bible. I go, the real problem is, is that 95% of our liturgy is directly from the Bible. The problem is, it's not that they need more Bible. They're wanting less Bible. What they're wanting is that someone to stand up front and entertain them and say all kinds of stuff and whatever. They don't want that much scripture. So all of it comes from the scriptures. Now, if we're talking about the history of it, that's another study. And the study that I would say with this is, um, not only does our liturgy come from it, but our liturgy goes back to, and you can see it in the second century, where those who followed after our Lord in the first 200 years pretty well put this together. And most of it is in place by then. But even that is based upon the synagogue services, which is based upon the temple. I, what we've been doing is has never been... Hey, what do you think you want to do this Sunday? Oh, I'll write you something down. We'll just do it. So, yeah, it is kind of handed down, but it also is from Scripture, and the parts have always kind of been there. So, Well, I think what we see up here, well, there's two hymns, and we use that for the whole church here. I think that we begin to understand that what this is basically designed for is so you can memorize it. So you don't have to guess what's going to be said. You already know what the Lord is going to say to you through the service. That, that's really what this is all about. The Lord is speaking to us through the service. Um, so we'll stop at this point. Again, what we have is a, uh, an agenda printed out. We've got an order of service, which looks a lot like ours. Things actually look really good. But in the culture, in the colonies and everything, there were crazy revivalist stuff going on and all. Um, this is where they were trying to, and even someone who had come from a pietistic kind of upbringing, nevertheless, Muhlenberg was very concerned with the Luther confessions and, and, and the truth. He wanted to stay with this Lutheran service, you know, uh, so... That's where we'll stop for today and, and come back next time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to teach us your word uh, so that we might be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.